0: morning. We'd like to welcome each one of you here on this beautiful sunny Sunday morning as we come together as God's people and praise him. Please stand and join us as we sing together.
1: Too cute! Will never end You're the only God
2: Father, you are God alone. We've come today to worship you as the Almighty God, the King of all, the Creator of all, and the one who loves us. We pray that our worship would honor you and please you and and would draw us closer to you in your love and your grace. And we ask this through Christ. Amen. Amen encourage you to uh, take a moment, share a word of greeting with others who are here in worship today. couple things I want to note uh, about upcoming events in your bulletin, a number of announcements there. Just to note that this Wednesday night, our children's ministries begin, and you see that uh, the ministries listed there. If you uh, didn't get a chance to register, I'm sure it's fine for you to bring your children, and uh, we'll get them involved. And so we anticipate a great year of ministry with our children together. Uh, also, you'll notice that uh, there's a uh, seminar starting in mid-October about people dealing with grief and loss. And I uh, encourage you to take a look at, uh, at the information there about that. And also note the, uh, the symposium at the college this weekend uh, about human trafficking. And uh, it's an important issue that we need to, to be connected to and involved with in the, in the fight against uh, the slave trade throughout the world. Uh, also, we, are, we want to help the uh, Volunteer Fire Department. We appreciate so much everyone who volunteers to help keep us safe, the EMTs, firefighters, people who work in a variety of ways, uh, volunteering a lot of time and energy. And so uh, we want to uh, support them and, and help them in that process of, of helping us. There are a number of prayer concerns that are listed there in the bulletin, and we especially want to pray for Lynn Perry and her family at the death of of her sister earlier this week. There are also some inserts in your bulletin today. Uh, Women's Fall Gathering is coming up this weekend, and you see information about that, and also a note to college students about being on the College Ministries Committee. There are also a couple of inserts in your bulletin with uh, paintings on them. And um, I think that um, we we have different views about art, and sometimes our, our view about art is... Is related to, well, if I, if I understand it, then it's important and it's good. And, and that's somewhat true. But one of the reasons we're going to be putting a, an image in the, uh, in the bulletin each week related to the character that we're talking about each Sunday. And, and one of the things I want to encourage you to do is to think outside of what might be normal for you. And uh, throughout the week, to use this as a part of your devotional time. ...and to to meditate on these pictures because I think God can communicate to us through them as well. And so I want to encourage you in somewhat the same way as we we do different things in the prayer room. And we have ways of connecting and praying to God that are outside just the norm that we might always do. And I often find people people say to me, you know, I did something different and wow, it was an amazing experience. And I think part of that is just being willing to do something different and to be willing to let God speak to us through some different avenues... And so I would encourage you to, uh, to use that as uh, one of the means that, that as part of your devotional time and your connection uh, with God in meditation and in prayer throughout this coming week as well as today as we worship.
0: Scripture reading this morning is from Genesis 38, selected verses. About that time, Judah left his brothers in the hill country and went to live near his friend Hira in the town of Adullam. While there, he met the daughter of Shua, a Canaanite man. Judah married her, and they had three sons. He named the first one Ur, she named the next one Onan. The third one was born when Judah was in Chazib, and she named him Shelah. Later, Judah chose Tamar as a wife for Ur, his oldest son. But Ur was very evil, and the Lord took his life. So Judah told Onan, it's your duty to marry Tamar and have a child for your brother. Onan knew the child would not be his, and when he had relations with Tamar, he made sure she would not get pregnant. The Lord was not pleased with Onan and took his life, too. Judah did not want the same thing to happen to his son, Shelah, And he told Tamar, go home to your father. Live there as a widow until my son, Shelah is grown. So Tamar went to live with her father. Some years later, Judah's wife died. He mourned for her. He then went with his friend Hira to the town of Timnah, where his sheep were being sheared. Tamar found out that her father-in-law, Judah, was going to Timnah to shear his sheep. She also realized that Shayla was now a grown man, but she had not been allowed to marry him. So, she decided to dress in something other than her widow's clothes and to cover her face with a veil. After this, she sat outside the town of Anaim on the road to Timnah. When Judah came along, he did not recognize her because of the veil. He thought she was a prostitute and asked her to sleep with him. She asked, what will you give me if I do? One of my young goats, he answered. What will you give me to keep until you send the goat, she asked. What do you want, he asked in return. The ring on that cord around your neck was her reply. I also want the special walking stick you have with you. He gave them to her, they slept together, and she became pregnant. After returning home, Tamar took off the veil and dressed in her widow's clothes again. Judah had his friend Hira take a goat to the woman so he could get back the ring and the walking stick, but she wasn't there. Hira asked the people of Anayim, where is the prostitute who sat along the road outside your town? There's never been one here, they answered. Hira went back and told Judah, I couldn't find the woman, and the people of Anayim said no prostitute had ever been there. If you couldn't find her, we'll just let her keep the things I gave her, Judah answered, and we better forget about the goat, or else we'll look like fools." About three months later, someone told Judah, your daughter-in-law Tamar has behaved like a prostitute and now she's pregnant. Drag her out of town and burn her to death, Judah shouted. As Tamar was being dragged off, she sent someone to tell her father-in-law, the man who gave me this ring, this cord, and this walking stick is the one who got me pregnant. Those are mine, Judah admitted. She's a better person than I am because I broke my promise to let her marry my son, Shelah. After this, Judah never slept with her again. Tamar later gave birth to twins, but before either of them was born, one of them stuck a hand out of her womb. The woman who was helping tied a red thread around the baby's hand and explained, this one came out first. Right away, his hand went back in, and the other child was born first. The woman then said, what an opening you've made for yourself, so they named that baby Perez. When the brother with the red thread came out, they named him Zerah. This is the word of the Lord. At this time, we'd like to invite the ushers forward to receive our morning tithes and offerings. And children ages 2 to 5 may be dismissed for children's church.
1: are saved. Find their way at the sound of your great name. All condemned, feel no shame at the sound of your great name. The enemy he has to leave at the sound of your
2: with us. Together, if you'd like to use the altar as your place of prayer, I invite you to come and join me. Fathers, we come today to worship you and to honor you and to glorify you. We also come to to pour out before you the burdens of our hearts. We pray for all among us who yearn for life to be different than it is. Our lives, others' lives. We pray that you will heal the sick, We ask you to comfort our friends who are overcome with the pain of loss. Restore our homes to what you and and we want them to be. Lead our families to wholeness and hope, whatever our family at this point in life may look like. Hear our prayers. Father, we pray that you will give to us hearts of compassion for people who are in need. Give us hearts of compassion for people who have hurt us and for people we have hurt. Give us hearts of love for people who suffer around the world. Help us as as individuals and as a church to be more interested in the struggles of others than honestly we typically are. Toward this world, give us the mind, the heart, the spirit of Christ. Father, we pray that as we continue in worship, you would open the doors that we have slammed shut and that you would close the doors that we have pride open. Fill this place with newness of life through your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. thank you for what you've done for us in Christ. We pray that you will continue to speak into our lives individually and corporately that we might know more of who you are and become more enamored with you and your kingdom. And we pray this through Christ. Amen. Please be seated. let's just get it right out in the open, right up front. Genesis 38 is a really uncomfortable passage to read in church, isn't it? I mean, I was thinking to myself, there probably are some passages we shouldn't read in church, and that might be one of them. And we cleaned it up, you know? I mean, I found the most innocuous version possible for us to read today that would not be quite as offensive to our sensibilities. And that is the weakest, thanks be to God, after this is the word of the Lord that I've ever heard in my life. I mean, we're sitting there thinking, really? I guess. Right? You know, it, it's one of those passages that we read, but we, we think, wow, that's in the Scriptures. Really. And it 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 always amuses me when people, you know, they want to ban books that they consider racy from libraries or schools. And I want to say to them, have you read Genesis? Have have you read the Old Testament? Have you seen it? This is real life. And and when you read the passage like this and you realize how messy and complicated and, and, and difficult real life is. And and when I read passages like this, it it affirms for me that the scriptures have to be something from God. Because if we were creating scriptures from our own human mind and thinking, what are the best things we could put in? I don't think we would include stories like this. But the reality is, this story is a part of our spiritual heritage. These are people who are part of our spiritual family tree. Whether we like it or not. But I think in order to understand this passage and, what, and, and why it's here and, and what God has to say to us through it, uh, it's important for us to get a little bit of context. you've got to remember, all of this takes place in probably the latter to middle part of the second century B.C. It's a different time than what we, and how we, when we live. Different ways of thinking and and as the story unfolds, Judah, one of Jacob's twelve sons, who become one of the tribes of Israel. Jacob um goes to and he marries a Canaanite woman. They have three sons. And and the the first son, Ur, sounds like they couldn't think of a name for him, and he's, what do you want to name him? Er, okay, that sounds good, right? And he says, Okay. He gets, so he has it and marries Tamar, and, and Ur is a wicked person. He doesn't tell us what he does, but obviously his life is completely devoted to wickedness because God takes his life. And Tamar is left a widow and childless. That's a dangerous place to be in that time of the world. Women in general had very few rights, if any rights. And, and there there is something in, in the culture, in that culture particularly... That all of a woman's self-worth and self-esteem and value is tied up in bearing children. There is something also about in, in, a, in a culture that has very little understanding of the afterlife. They don't, they don't have the, the whole concept of eternity such as we have sh- uh, shaped for us in the New Testament. For most of the people, they have no concept of the afterlife. They might wonder there might be something, but at this point in time, they have no clue about it and so for them, if you want to carry on your legacy, if you want to have, if you want to have something about your life that goes beyond you, you bear children, and your descendants carry on that name that 's one of the reasons then why this whole idea of lever marriage was was uh, Brought into the picture this concept that if a man dies without children, then his brother marries his his uh, widow and has and they have a child, and that child actually belongs to the uh, to the first husband in order to carry on their family name. It is that important to them there 's a passage in first kings twenty one where God is talking to Ahab, one of the most wicked kings of Israel, and he says I'm bringing disaster on you. And what's that disaster going to be? I'm going to wipe out your descendants. It's one of the worst things that could ever happen to someone. Have no descendants. Have no one to carry on their, their legacy. For that to stop. It's a part of the punishment. It's hard for us to grasp quite the, the, the intensity of those feelings. Thousands of years later. But for, for the folks in those days, that was Imperative. And so Judah says to Onan, the second son, you need, to, you need to take care of this. And Onan won't fulfill his responsibility. And God is so upset with him because of what he's doing to Tamar and what he, and he's thumbing his nose at, at God's plan for how you know descendants and how that's supposed to be and the value and worth of Tamar as a person. And God strikes him dead as well. Now Judah has a third son. He's younger. He's not quite marrying age yet, but he's thinking to himself, "Okay, this woman is. I had two sons. Both of them married to this woman. Both of them have died. Now Judah completely ignores the fact that they died because they were wicked. He's just thinking there is some connection here. I'm not sure. I want my third son to have the same thing happen. So, but he sends he sends Tamar away. She says, go, you go back to your father's family and when Sheila is old enough, then I'll call you and, and you can marry him. And so she goes away. Now you got to understand in that culture, once she is married to Judah's family, she belongs to Judah. She can go and live in her father's house, but she's no longer really her father's child. She belongs to Judah and whatever Judah says, that's what she has to do. And so as long as Judah says, I'm going to save my son for you, she cannot marry anyone else. She's stuck. Well, years go by and she begins to realize that Judah's not going to to allow her to marry the third son. And so she takes matters into her own hands. And she ends up having having twin children with her father-in-law. Now, this is not a story about what to do when you feel desperate. So make that clear, okay? That's not the point of the story. This is a story about how, about who God is to desperate people. This is a story about the heart of God for people who feel desperate. Desperate. And I think, there is, I think there is something in this story that, if we're honest, we see of ourselves. When you look at Tamar, you see a woman who is desperate. She lives in a culture where she has few rights, if any rights. And the only thing she can hang on to is the, is the opportunity to bear children, her value, her worth. And now that's been taken away from her. And she is left not only without children, but in great jeopardy as a widow in a very patriarchal, oppressive society. I think it's hard for us to grasp just how desperate she feels. But there are times when we may feel desperate about life. Desperate to be loved. Desperate to end a relationship. Desperate to have a relationship. Desperate to see something happen with our lives that that we have dreamed and planned and worked for. We know something of feeling desperate about living in this world and and not being able to experience the dreams, those things deep within us that we want to experience. And that is tied up with our sense of value and self-worth. There is something in us that that feels desperate, and when we feel desperate, usually it's because we feel as though there there are no more options for us. And people who feel desperate tend to take drastic action to do something about it. When in this story, it, the the thing that symbolizes Tamar's choice to to appear as a prostitute, is a veil. I've had a couple people that have, have made this veil for us today. And, and this, this sense of the veil it is really symbolic of how desperate she is. That she would be willing to take that kind of action and feels as though there, is, there are no other alternatives. She has, she has no other options in life. This is it. It, it, it makes you understand maybe maybe a little bit more that sense of desperation, that sense of vulnerability that causes people to to be willing to, to be herded like cattle into a semi-truck, in a trailer of a semi-truck in order to get across the border into this land of freedom. It, it gives you a little bit of an idea of peop, why people would would be willing to to live for however long on the, in, in the waters of the Pacific Ocean in an attempt to get away from their oppressive life and come to freedom. It, you know, it, it helps us to, to maybe understand how people may feel who live in, in a part of, of cities or cultures where all they know is drugs and violence They have no, there's no sense of of really a family like we might, we probably know it. They have no opportunities for education, no opportunities for advancement. All they feel is locked in, desperate, vulnerable. And in those moments when you feel that vulnerable, you do desperate things to try to get out of it. And as we think about what the steps that Tamar is willing to take in order to do something about her desperation, maybe it makes us feel a little bit bit more understanding of people in those circumstances. And maybe we've been in those circumstances as we've thought about the things that make us feel desperate and the steps that we're willing to take to try to get out of it. But here's the thing that's interesting about this story is that Whenever you, whenever you sense that God, whenever you sense this sense of desperation, the one thing that we have to see is that God is still there. God is still at work. God is still active. It's sometimes difficult to, to think about how to describe God. And, and, and we use what theologians call anthropomorphic language. You know, language of, of human beings to describe the divine. And, and it seems to me as I read through the scriptures that that God has a soft place in his heart for people who feel desperate. You know, there are many instances in the scriptures where, where God talks about his care, his compassion, his love for people who are widows and orphans and aliens and strangers, people who, are, who live in a culture... In which they are completely vulnerable to the culture. One example is Psalm 68, where it says that Father of the orphans, champion of the widows, this is God in his holy house. He builds homes for the homeless and frees the prisoners. This is our God. And over and over again, he talks about his his compassion for people who are in places of vulnerability and desperation. I think it's hard for us to really grasp that. That God cares that much for people who feel desperate. That God is at work in their lives. That God's at work in their situations. That God's at work in our lives and in our situations when we feel desperate. We feel like there's no way out. We feel like there's nothing more we can do. God is there. God's at work. God is active and loving and compassionate and caring. But I suspect for most of us, even in those moments when we may feel desperate and, and vulnerable, I suspect that for most of us, if we were to put ourselves into the shoes and really to, to say, this is probably my circumstance, we're probably more like Judah than we are Tamar. I mean, we are people who, who have been born by and large into into blessing and, and into, into lives and into a world in which we have been given so much. Even in the circumstances where we might feel desperate and vulnerable, honestly, we have so much, we have opportunities for education that so much of the world doesn't. I doubt if any of us are wondering, what, where am I going to find food for Tomorrow. I doubt if we're wondering, do I, will I have a place to sleep tonight? Will I have warm clothes to wear? I mean, we, we are on, honestly, most of us are on the other side of this issue. And unfortunately, a lot of times as the church, we are just as judgmental about people who are desperate and the actions they take as Judah is. We get so wrapped up in, hey, they shouldn't do that, that we don't realize the circumstances that might have led someone to take that action. And what we don't realize is that maybe, just maybe, our behavior, our apathy, our decisions might actually be be adding to their desperation. God not only says he is for people who are vulnerable and feel desperate, he also is very clear about the action he takes against people who are unconcerned about people who are vulnerable and desperate. In Deuteronomy 27, God says to the people of Israel, cursed is anyone who withholds justice from the fatherless and the widows and the foreigners among you. God is serious about how we respond to people who are struggling to live in this world, who feel vulnerable and used and taken advantage of and manipulated by the culture and society in which we live. I think it ought to have it ought to then have some bearing on how we think about people in those circumstances. It ought to, it ought to make us think Think twice about, about our response to some of the issues that we're dealing with as a nation, like illegal immigrants. And to think about what is it that what is it about life that, that has brought people here and their willingness to put themselves at such risk? We ought ought to say something to us about our, our perspective on human trafficking. It ought to say something to us about how we view children in this world. Particularly children who, who live in environments where they are abused or neglected. And honestly, it ought to say something to us about, about how, we, how we view gender issues in this world. I mean, granted, we've come a long way from, from the way women are treated in the second century B.C. to now. But the truth of the matter is, in a lot of our culture, in a lot of our society, women are still viewed as second-class citizens. And what is most unfortunate is that too often, the church sends that same message. We send the message that the people who have gifts, God-given gifts and abilities to preach and to teach and to lead... Are not allowed to use those gifts and abilities in the kingdom simply because of their gender, and I know we say, "Well, it's because Scripture says that." Well, if that were true, then it, would, it seems to me that that the scriptures in the Old Testament about how God specifically calls people like Deborah and Huldah to teach and to lead, and to govern, and to prophesy in the nation of Israel, that they would carry at least as much weight as the couple of passages in the New Testament in which Paul, speaking to a specific congregation in a specific place about a specific circumstance, they ought to at least carry the same weight. Something in our minds needs to understand the subtle ways in which we create an atmosphere in which people feel desperate. The bottom line of this is that this is about the nature of the kingdom of God. This is about how God, God's economy of his kingdom, how God views people who are desperate. And I think it's pretty hard for us, maybe it's because of of the circumstances in which we've lived, but I think it's hard for us to truly grasp and to affirm the nature of God's kingdom toward desperate people. That God is patient, often far more than we are. And that God is compassionate and loving and caring far more than we are. You know, we read this story and, and, and I know we're, we're, we feel like, well, Judah did the wrong thing. But I suspect most of us as we're reading that story are probably more upset about what Tamar did than about what Judah didn't do. But when you read the story, that doesn't seem to be God's response. I'm not sure there's a hero in this story at all. You know, I, I think basically everybody makes bad decisions. But you don't get the impression at all from the writer that God condemns Tamar for what she does. I don't think God necessarily is pleased with what she does. But he doesn't condemn her. And in fact, Judas says, she's more righteous than I am. And I don't think by that he means that she's a better person than I am. I think it has something to do with something bigger than that. You remember that that Judah understands that God came to his grandfather Abraham and said, it's through you that I'm going to bless the world. It's through your descendants that the world's going to know me. And Judah has an opportunity to to bring descendants into the world who will spread the news of God, and he refuses to do so. Whereas Tamar, who is a, a Gentile... See, something in all of this about carrying on the descendants of God. Now, again, I don't think this is a story where two wrongs make a right. In fact, about seven generations later, a couple people come onto the scene, Ruth and Boaz, and they find themselves, Ruth finds herself in a very similar situation to Tamar. She is a she is a Moabite woman. She's married to to a, a Jewish man and he dies and they don't have children and they, and they come back to to Bethlehem. And she real and her mother in law says, Boaz is one of our relatives. And Ruth doesn't seduce him, but instead goes to him and said, Would you be willing to marry me? And God honors that. And and, and I think God would say they're doing it right. but at the same time i think we have to we have to be very careful about being judgmental toward people who are vulnerable and desperate because god is awfully patient with them and the reality is the kingdom of god is about god being patient with all of us and the drastic decisions that we make and the struggles that we wrestle with. See, the kingdom of God is not about God trying to find people who are perfect that can make up His kingdom. It's about realizing none of us are perfect and trying to help us and transform us into people who are part of His kingdom. When we read the story, most of us tend to to, to think about the world, we tend to think what we 're impressed with people who have wealth and power and fame, and we tend to ignore people who are desperate and vulnerable and on the edges of society and Yet when we read the New Testament, what do we find? Jesus continually is with people who are vulnerable and desperate and on the edges of society, and we tend to value people who have power. And judge the people who are down and out. And when you read the scriptures, God has a tendency to judge the people who have power. And to value the people who are down and out. Now this is a complicated story. And it's messy. And in a sense, there really aren't, in one sense, there aren't any winners in this story at all. You know, that when you read this kind of story, it's like, you know, the, the family of, of Abraham and the book of Genesis, and this family here, it's sort of like Peyton Place and all my children and, and dynasty and Jersey Shore all wrapped up into one thing, you know. I mean, you read this, you go, my goodness. And, and yet God says, these are my people. And you want to say, really, seriously? Come on, you couldn't find anybody better than this? And what is so fascinating to me is that when when Matthew writes his gospel of Jesus and he records the genealogy of Jesus, he only mentions four women other than Mary. And the first woman on the list is not Abraham's wife, Sarah. It's not Isaac's wife, Rebecca. It's not Jacob's wives, Leah and Rachel. It's Tamar. And there is something in, in that that the writer, Matthew, is trying to help us understand that the nature of the kingdom is not about perfect people. It's about people who are willing to let God use them. It's about God taking imperfect people and shaping them and changing them and transforming them into people who represent him. But you know then, that's really why Jesus comes. Jesus comes to transform imperfect people. Jesus comes to give us a new perspective about the world and about culture and a new perspective about the kingdom. And in fact, to turn our ideas about the kingdom upside down and to give us hearts that are more interested in being there for people Who are vulnerable and desperate and on the edges of society and culture, and about wielding power, about gathering wealth, about being famous. And it's really not just about us as individuals. And it's not just about us as families, it's about us as the church. And the message that we send to the world about the nature of God's kingdom as it's represented by the church. That we care for people that the world may not care for. That we value people differently than culture and society values them. Because God does. Someone sent me a video last week, and it was about a, it's about a campaign that is, that is attempting to, to get people to come back to church. And we're not really talking today about coming back to church, but there is something about this video underlying the message here that I think is exactly what we're talking about today. It's exactly this message of what the church, what the kingdom is about and how God views people and about the economy of God's kingdom.
1: Here's a few reasons why people
0: don't go to church. I can't come to church until I get my life together. Church is how I got my life together. Church is filled with a bunch of hypocrites. And there's always room for one more. All they care about is your money. They care
1: about me, not about my money.
0: Is there some kind of dress code? Yes, the code is
2: wear some clothes. Church... It just makes me nervous. I was nervous at first, and then
1: I felt right at home. I'm not sure I believe everything that you believe.
0: But you can still belong.
2: Churches for wimpy, girly men.
1: You want to say that again? If you knew me and what I've done... You wouldn't want me. If you knew me and what I've done, you
0: wouldn't be worried. You can come to my church even if you were brought up Catholic,
2: Baptist, Methodist,
0: Jewish, Mormon, Lutheran, Pentecostal, Presbyterian, Church of Christ, Southern Baptist. A little bit of everything and a whole lot of nothing. See, it's not about a religion, it's about a relationship. So please, come to my church where nobody's perfect. Where beginners are welcome. Where socks are optional. But grace is required. Where forgiveness is offered. Where hope is alive. And
1: where it's okay to not be okay. Really.
2: (laughs) Heavenly Father... we get pretty hung up on things that are not central to your kingdom. We're judgmental. We set higher standards for other people than we do for ourselves. We wrestle and struggle To really believe that your kingdom is not about perfect people. It's about Jesus welcoming all of us and transforming us into new people. Father, give us a new image for ourselves and for the world. Of your kingdom, open our eyes, change our hearts, and we ask this through Christ. Amen.
0: Please stand as we sing together. (laughs)
1: Lost are saved. Find their.